If you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Jonah 3, the book of Jonah. We are going to take a little break from the book of Psalms. Uh, Bob will be finishing uh, our sermon series on the book of Psalms next week as he finishes up uh, the second part of Psalm 139. So I thought it would be good to take a little break from the Psalter and look at this little book in uh, the Old Testament, the book of Jonah. So we will be reading all of Jonah chapter 3. So please now give attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let us pray. Our dear heavenly and gracious Father, we do thank you for this, your word, and we pray now that you would settle our hearts and our minds upon it that you would use the preaching of your word to draw us ever closer to yourself and ever closer to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray now. Amen. I hope he gets his. What goes around comes around. I have to get even. These, of course, are common expressions we all know, and they seem innocent Enough. Most of the time they are spoken when a wrong has been committed against us. And revenge is the only thing that will put our minds at ease. When we are the victims of injustice, forgiveness is the farthest thing from our minds and only revenge will do. I will never forget when I was a young boy and I was the victim of a rather unkind prank. And I remember I would often daydream about ways I would get back at these pranksters. And it absolutely consumed me. I couldn't think about anything else. I remember I would try to concentrate on school, but my mind would immediately go back to this unkind act that these pranksters did against me. And just the simple thought of an unfortunate circumstance befalling my enemies would make me feel okay. 
I'm sure you all have had this feeling in one way or another. And I think at times when we have this feeling, we think that God is right there along with us having this very same feeling. I remember when I would daydream as a kid about getting back at my pranksters, I thought God was right there thinking the very same thing, wanting the very same revenge that I want. But what we see in the book of Jonah and what we see here in Jonah 3 is that God is not a God that pursues revenge, but he is a God of grace who pursues forgiveness. What we see in Jonah 3 is that God is a God of grace that extends his hand to Jonah and to his enemy Nineveh in order to forgive them. God is not a God of revenge. He is a God of grace that seeks to reconcile his enemies to himself. And so what I want us to see this morning is three ways God's grace is put on display here in Jonah 3. First, I want us to see God's gracious pursuit, verses 1 through 3. Second, I want us to see God's gracious word, verses 4 through 9. And third, I want us to see God's gracious desire, verse 10. God's gracious pursuit, God's gracious word, and God's gracious desire. But first, God's gracious pursuit of Jonah. It's interesting, when we look at the opening two verses of chapter 3, we see that they essentially repeat the first two verses of the book in chapter 1. Look with me at chapter 1 of Jonah, verses 1 through 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So what we see then is that in the first two verses of chapter 3 is God's second commission to Jonah to go and preach against Nineveh. Now who was Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was a prominent major city in the empire of Assyria. It was closely associated with military activity, and it had strong, brutal military types of activity. It was known for its almost inhumane behavior and acts towards those that they conquered. And in the year 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel will be the victims of that strong military brutality. When the kingdom of Assyria and essentially Nineveh will come in and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and take the people into exile. So it would be uh, safe to say that Nineveh was an enemy of Israel. And we think that Jonah probably is prophesying here 40 to 50 years prior to that destruction of Jerusalem. Along with their strong military brutality was Nineveh's extreme polytheism. They were known for having the temple of Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess of love. They had many temples of the uh, god Nabu, the god of writing, along with many other gods and idols surrounding the city. So Nineveh was a brutal, militaristic nation. 
that defied God in many ways. It was a pagan nation. And God is calling for Jonah, the prophet, to cry out against Nineveh. But what do we find in chapter 1, verse 3? What is Jonah's response to this first call from God at the beginning of the book? We see that Jonah arises to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Nineveh sat on the east bank of the Tigris River, while Tarshish is associated with distant coastlands in the western Mediterranean. So what you have here with Jonah is he is going in the complete opposite direction of where God has told him to go. It would be like God telling us to go to Delaware, and we end up going to California. Jonah in chapter 1 is defying God, seeking not only to flee the place that God has told him to go, but as the text indicates, fleeing the very presence of God himself. So he thinks. But here in chapter 3, verse 3, we see a change in Jonah's response. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. So we have to ask the question, why the change in Jonah's response here? Well, in Jonah chapter 1, we see Jonah's failed attempt to flee the presence of God. God, uh, Jonah goes down to Joppa and gets on a ship with a group of sailors headed to Tarshish. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, we're told that God hurls a great wind upon the sea, what is called a tempest on the sea. And it, it, it causes destruction to the ship, and it, and it threatens the very safety of the ship. Jonah, Jonah, knowing that it is the Lord pursuing him, tells the sailors to throw him overboard so that the storm would subside. The sailors agree and throw him overboard. And in verse 17 of chapter 1, we are told that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And he is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Which causes Jonah in chapter 2 to cry out to God in prayer. And in chapter 2, verse 10, God speaks to the fish and Jonah is vomited up. So that now Jonah is ready to listen. And to obey God. In chapters 1 and 2, Jonah has experienced God's gracious pursuit of him. Jonah has foolishly disobeyed the command of God. And in his foolishness, he even seeks to flee God's presence. But God, rather than leaving him in his sin, leaving him in his disobedience, leaving him in his obstinance, uses his creative forces to bring Jonah to his knees and make Jonah surrender all to the God of his salvation. We are told in chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah will say, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God has pursued Jonah, despite Jonah trying to seek to, to, to flee his presence. He has pursued him and brought him to a place where he's ready to listen and ready to obey. The famous poet Francis Thompson wrote a famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, in the late 1800s. A poem that has impacted many, many, uh, many Christians since its writing. And in that poem, 
entitled The Hound of Heaven, Thompson describes God as a hound who pursues his people like a hound pursues its prey. And in the poem, you see Thompson, he's constantly trying to flee from the presence of God, but God will not allow him to get too far, always nipping at his ankles, violently bringing his ways of, and his, in his directions that he's trying to get away from God, thwarting his ways of trying to flee the presence of God until finally he brings Thompson to an end of himself so that Thompson is able to surrender all. God's grace isn't a tame and timid thing. It is an aggressive. It is active. It is violent. It uses a violent storm. It uses the violent beasts of the sea. It uses a violent, bloody cross to bring people into his presence. What we see with Jonah and what we see with Christ is that God cares more about our salvation than we do. God cares more about our restored relationship with him than we do. It's quite humbling when we compare our pursuit of God with God's pursuit of us, isn't it? How do we often pursue God? Often in a tame and timid fashion. We don't aggressively and actively search after God. We don't aggressively and actively defend the honor of God's name. But we so often seek his presence when it's most convenient for us. But what do we see at the cross of Christ? We see a God that has stripped all convenience aside. And he actively and aggressively and, yes, even violently pursues us, his people, so that we will come to an end of ourselves, ready to say, as Jonah is here, able to say, Speak, Lord, for I am listening. Jonah is ready to listen and to obey God because he is the recipient of God's gracious pursuit of him. Second, we see God's gracious word, verse 4 through 9. God's gracious word. Verse 4, Jonah delivers the word of God to Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5, we see the response of the Ninevites to this word of God delivered by Jonah. Really, the ESV doesn't do the Hebrew justice here because it actually says the Ninevites believed in God. In other words, it's not that they just believe this one word from God. They believe in the God who is the source of this word. This is a conversion from the Ninevites, turning from their sin to a belief in God. And they evidence their conversion by calling for a fast and putting on sackcloth. And we are told that it is done from the greatest to the least of them. This is a city-wide repentance. This is a city-wide conversion. Verse 6 through 9, the focus shifts from the people now to the king. The word has such an impact on him that he takes himself off of his throne, takes off of his royal robe, and places onto himself sackcloth and sits in ashes. 
What the king is essentially doing here is he is taking aside all of those idols and all of the things that politics and his power were connected to. And he is throwing them aside and sitting in ashes, evidencing his hatred for his sin and the fact that he too has been cut to the heart by the word of Jonah. We are told he issues a royal decree. In this decree, not only is man not to eat anything and put on sackcloth, but every animal is to take on the sign of repentance. He tells the people to turn from their evil and call out mightily to God. He says, who knows, God might relent, God might turn from his fierce anger. What do we have here? We have all of wicked Nineveh, all of wicked, idolatrous, violent Nineveh, from the greatest to the least of them, from the upper class to the lower class, even the king and the nobles themselves being cut to the very heart by God's word being proclaimed. I want us to note two things about this word that Jonah brings to Nineveh. First, notice the terseness of the message. This is among the shortest speeches given in all of the Bible. In the Hebrew, it is only five words, yet it brings about a monumental change. It brings about a world, it brings about a city-wide conversion and repentance. There is power in the Word of God. And God's Word need not be long in order for it to bring about its desired effect. Think about Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. What does Jesus say? Lazarus, come out. And a dead body is obedient to those three words. And it is enlivened and it comes out of the grave. Think of Christ when he calms the storm with his disciples and he simply says, peace, be still. And the storm is still. The terseness of Jonah's message points to the fact that the power to bring people to God, the power to bring whole communities, whole cities, whole pagan nations to God, lies not in the messenger and in the power and in the eloquence of his words and his ability to string sentences together, but in God's word and in God's word alone. Second, notice that this is a word of judgment. God gives a warning to Nineveh of his impending judgment. God in his word graciously warns us of his judgment upon sin. It is an act of God's grace that God warns us of hell itself. It is a word of warning It is a word of destruction that leads to Nineveh's conversion and repentance. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards delivered what is now an extremely famous sermon, his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, to a congregation in Enfield, Connecticut. That sermon's theme, as most of you know, was hell. And in that sermon, Jonathan Edwards uh, describes hell in the most vivid and frightening terms. And he says essentially that the threat of hell hangs over everyone's head unless they turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
It is said that Edwards was interrupted many times as he was giving that sermon by cries from the congregation saying, what shall I do to be saved? Now it's interesting today that many do not see that sermon as a sermon of grace and love. They see it rather as a sermon that is filled with scare tactics, a sermon of fear that was meant to incite fear in his congregation, and not a sermon of love, not a sermon of God's grace. But what the Bible suggests to us and what Jonah 3 suggests to us is that that is a false dichotomy. Grace and fear, love and fear are not mutually exclusive terms. It is part of God's love and part of God's grace that he warns us of his judgment on sin. And his word of judgment is not spoken in some tame and light manner. It's spoken in stark and a fearful way. It's interesting in verse 4 of chapter 3 of Jonah, that word for overthrow is a strong Hebrew verb. It's a verb that is used to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a devastating, apocalyptic judgment that is hanging over the head of the Ninevites, and they know it. When you love someone, you give them the warning of the danger that lies ahead. And the greater the danger is, the more vivid and the more stern you are going to be in describing that danger. Jesus doesn't say hell is a bad place. You'd rather go to heaven. He says that hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a blazing fire with a fire that never, ever runs out. He doesn't say that in order to incite fear only, but he uses that heavy, heavy language out of his heavy, heavy love for us. So that we will be like the Ninevites here, putting away our evil ways and turning to Christ, turning away from the things that bring judgment and turning to the one who brings salvation, joy, and heaven itself. When we strip away the threat of hell, what we ultimately are doing is taking away an instrument of God's grace that he uses to draw people to himself. It is God's grace that he teaches us of the warning of hell. And we too, upon our lips, are to teach that very same warning so that those that are like Nineveh would turn to God and be saved. Third, we see God's gracious desire in verse 10. We read in verse 10, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse 10 is really the climax of what chapters 1 through 2 and the first nine verses of chapter 3 are all about, are what they are leading to. Here is really the apex and the center of the story. God's grace in Jonah's life, God's gracious word to the Ninevites has brought about the desired effect, God's forgiveness for Nineveh. It's interesting when you look at the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 3, God's message and commission hasn't changed. 
Jonah has changed, but God hasn't changed. And his message hasn't changed. It's interesting when you look at chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah's life, it almost reads like an adventure novel, doesn't it? He goes down to Joppa. He's fleeing the presence of God. He gets on a ship towards Tarshish. He's caught in this crazy windstorm. And he's thrown overboard into the, into the tempest, into the sea. He's swallowed up by a great fish. He's there for three days and three nights. He's spit up. You almost have this image of Jonah where he's just completely out of breath. And then he comes to God, and what is it that he hears? He hears the very same message that he heard at the beginning. It's as though God has put Jonah through hell and has brought him back to himself and is essentially saying, okay, do I have your attention now? Back to what I was saying before you foolishly left me. Go preach to Nineveh. In other words, the grace that God extends towards Jonah is for the means of extending grace to Nineveh, that great pagan city. Jonah is shown grace so that he will be an instrument of God's grace. God graciously pursues Jonah so that he can put his gracious word on the lips of Jonah, so that that grace can be extended to this great pagan city of Nineveh, to God's enemy, and to Jonah's enemy as well. Really, in the book of Jonah, we do get a picture of Christ, don't we? Just think of Jesus with his disciples in his final hours on this earth. In his greatest hour of need, his disciples left him. In his greatest hour of need, when he was being handed over to die, his disciples left them. They essentially side with the killers by denying Christ. We're told that Peter denies Christ three times. And the language used, that the writers used to show Peter's denial, it seems as though Peter is actually cursing Christ. They side with his enemies. They betray him. They flee him. They curse him. And think about it. That is the last experience that Jesus has of his disciples before he dies. Have you ever thought about that? Think for a moment of somebody you love, somebody you have strong affections for. And in your greatest hour of need, as you are about to die, as you are giving your dying breath, you see that person you love, that person you care for, abandon you. Not only abandon you, curse you. Not only curse you, side with your enemies. I can only imagine if I were to come back to the dead, I come back from the dead, I would hate to think of what I would be thinking. I would probably be plotting my revenge against them the same way I was plotting my revenge against those pranksters many, many years ago. Yet what do we get from Jesus in John chapter 20? After he is resurrected, when he comes to see his disciples, his disciples who have abandoned him, his disciples that have fled from him, what are the first words he utters to them? Peace. Be with you. Peace be with you. 
What we see in Jonah and what we see in the person of Jesus Christ is that God's gracious desire is for peace to come upon his enemies. And God will show that gracious desire. He will display that gracious desire in our very own lives. For while we were still enemies, God sent his son to die for us. So that upon experiencing the grace of God in our own lives, we might extend that same grace to more and to more and to more enemies. So that people from every tribe, people from every nation, people from every tongue would turn from their sins and hear the words of Christ. Peace be with you. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you graciously pursue us. That in our disobedience and in our sin, we would have nothing to do with you. That we would seek to flee your very presence, but that you care more about our salvation and our relationship with you than we do ourselves. And you restore us to yourself in and through Christ Jesus as you pour your grace out at the cross of Calvary. And we pray, O Lord, upon being recipients of your grace, might you use us as instruments as you use Jonah to be ones who preach the word and proclaim the good news so that you would extend that grace to our enemies, to the people that we would rather have nothing to do with, so that the gospel would flourish and go from the ends of the earth. We thank you, O God, that you are a God of grace that has loved us from before the foundation of the world. And we pray that you would continue to work your grace in our hearts, that we might be good stewards and servants of Christ's kingdom. It is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.